Well, I think I hang around you guys so much, personally, because, well, you're all I think about. And um, I think that the reason I'm not interested in other women and why I haven't had sex in so long is because I am desperately, completely in love with you. <laughs> A group of friends struggle to adjust to adult life after graduating from college. Listen as we talk about TGI Friday's elaborate drinks, the shocking clause in the original Hippocratic Oath, and bad optics for the Jewish Walk of Fame. Then we find out if St. Elmo's fire stands the test of time. It's the test of time, James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says, gladiator with the glut. Alan says, as a father, blah, blah. It's the test of time, James and Alan have their say. Hello everyone, I'm James Brief and joining me for the test of time is you the listener but also my co-host Alan Noah. Yay, that's me. I'm here and you're here and we're talking about St. Elmo's Fire and I can feel it. I can feel it burning in me. Or maybe that's the burrito we just ate. <laughs> um, yes, we are talking about St. Elmo's Fire. And this is the Test of Time podcast where we uh, watch older movies. Not necessarily very old movies, but movies that have at least aged a little bit, at least 15 years. We try to see if these films still hold up. Or, as the title of the podcast goes, if these films stand the test of time. You know what really has stood the test of time? Uh... Our friendship? Yes, yes it has. But I'm going to skip ahead a little bit and talk about the box office of, uh, of St. Elmo's Fire. And I'm only going to do that for a reason. Uh, this film, which had a $10 million budget, was quite successful when it opened on uh, June 28, 1985. It opened at number four with $6.7 million on its way to $37 million. So five to six times multiplier, very successful. But it opened at number four that week in, in 1985. You know who has stood the test of time? No, I don't. Let me give you a hint. This is the kind of name that Marty McFly thinks is a common name in the Old West. Oh, Clint Eastwood. That's right. Clint Eastwood had the number one film for St. Elmo's Fire's opening, for last week's film, uh, Stay Tuned. It had still been number one from when it had opened, uh, when Three Ninjas opened earlier in the summer of 1992. Uh, would that be in the line of fire? No, it would not. You're not going to guess the 1985 one. But uh, 1992, you should be able to guess, and we have not reviewed this film, but we definitely will be reviewing this film. Unforgiven? That's correct. Yeah, okay. Unforgiven. That's the uh, the best picture from that year. That's a, that's a Western with Clint Eastwood. I think it's his last Western he ever did. Morgan Freeman's in it, Gene Hackman. And in 1985, it was another Clint Eastwood film called Pale Rider. I mean, the guy is still releasing films that are winning best picture. I mean, this guy has had... Five different eras. Like he's had his young Clint Eastwood. He had his later Clint Eastwood, kind of Dirty Harry stuff. He had his 90s Clint Eastwood when he's like, you know, he's an older Secret Service guy. And then in the 2000s, he started directing. 
But then he started making best pictures. And I was like, get off my lawn. I'm an old man. His last film was successful. The guy stands the test of time. He absolutely does. His Hollywood career has stood the test of time. I can't argue with you. I just uh, can't help thinking of him at that Republican National Convention lecturing to an empty chair, which was just a bad move. And someone really should have told him not to do that. It, it wasn't his finest hour, I would say. Yeah, 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 yeah. We saw The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. Have you ever seen any older Clint Eastwoods? Uh, I don't think so. Me neither. I haven't. Um, I have never seen a Dirty Harry film. I don't believe I have either. I think I've only seen a couple of his directed films. So we have a lot of Clint Eastwood's library to catch up on. Okay, fine. But can we also watch more Clint Howard movies? Oh, always. That's just watching Ron Howard films. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But let's talk about St. Elmo's Fire. This is a movie about a group of recent Georgetown University graduates who are struggling to adjust to adult life. There's Alec, a liberal who takes a job with a Republican senator because it pays better. He desperately wants to marry his girlfriend, Leslie, but she isn't ready. Also, Alec cheats on Leslie a lot. There's Wendy, who has a wealthy family, but she's interested in helping the less fortunate. She's in love with Billy, an alcoholic and deadbeat dad who wishes he could still party like he was an undergrad. Jules is in massive debt, but hides it from her friends. Kirby is in law school, and he becomes obsessed with Dale, a woman he went on one date with years ago. And Kevin is searching for the meaning of life, and his friends suspect that he might be gay. So you already said uh, how it did at the box office. A sizable hit for a Brat Pack movie. Oh, yeah. And this is one of the films that made the Brat Pack. Uh, I was reading some of the trivia behind it. And most of these people who are turned into varying degrees of big stars throughout the 80s, 90s, even today, a lot of them were discovered from this film. Yeah. The term Brat Pack, I believe, came out in 1985 because this movie hit in 85, as did Breakfast Club, which also starred Emilio Estevez, Ali Sheedy, and Judd Nelson. So it's kind of funny that in one movie they played high school kids, and in another movie that released the same year they played college graduates. But that's usually how these things work in Hollywood. The quote-unquote high school kids are really in their 20s, so it makes sense. Neither of them made sense for the acting because I feel like Judd Nelson looks like he's a boy wearing a suit. These guys look like they're college aged. And in this film, they're supposed to be like after college and in Breakfast Club, they're supposed to be before college. But these guys look like they're 20, solidly 20. They do not look like they're 24. They're not supposed to be 24, I guess. I guess it's supposed to be the months after graduation. Yeah, I was going to say they're just out of college. It's literally weeks and months after graduating. Oh, no, actually, the opening scene in the credits is them graduating. Well, that's not really a scene. That's just kind of like them walking in caps and gowns. Right. And then, like, the first scene is shortly thereafter. But I think the best way to talk about this movie is to kind of break it up by the different characters. And let's start with Billy, who is played by Rob Lowe. And he was a frat boy and still wants to be a frat boy. He's the guy who graduated college but wishes he could just still be in college. And I think that in and of itself is relatable. Even if you're not that kind of person, everybody knows someone who is that kind of person. I mean, I remember people who graduated from our college who were in our fraternity who came back after graduating and the reason they did that is because 
they were losers coming back to haze the pledges made them feel like they were big and important when in fact they were losers. I'm guessing you did too, but I certainly recognized that right away when you met these guys, right? No, I didn't think it was loserish. What I thought was kind of loserish was uh, if um, they came and wanted to like live at the fraternity again. Well, you know, I don't even want to say the word losers because, you know, we knew somebody that like the year after graduation, he did wind up kind of living in the fraternity house because we needed uh, a non-student to live there. Right. But in, in Billy's case, he really wants to go back to college. He wants to be Van Wilder, like who's going to be in college for seven years and he could still be there. It's definitely relatable because if it's not college, it's your 20s or 30s or high school or 40s or whatever it is going to be that you wish you could still do. There's a great scene with him that he finally like goes back to college. He goes back to his frat house and everyone's like, Billy, the legend. And he's back and he has a great day. He plays football with them. And then he asks them kind of sheepishly, like, is there a job for me on campus? And like, yeah, we'll find something for you. And then he almost thinks like, I'm going to be back. I'm just one of the guys again. And then they say, remember the line they say to him? Yeah, we need someone who can get us good drugs. Right, right. He just serves a purpose for them. And to borrow from Chris Rock, his joke about the old guy at the club. It doesn't mean you're old, old, but you're just a little too old for that club. And you don't want to be that guy that's too old at the club. Right. And Billy is very much in a state of arrested development. Um, You watch Stranger Things, right? Uh, I watched the first season. Oh, okay. Well, there's a character that's introduced in season two whose name is Billy, just like Rob Lowe's character in this movie. And he looks a lot like Rob Lowe's character in this movie. Neither here nor there. Just wanted to mention it. But right out of the gate, when we first meet Billy, they're in the hospital because he crashed a car while drunk driving and it was Wendy's car and Wendy like forgives him and it's fine and Wendy clearly has a crush on him but Billy doesn't give a shit he's hitting on every girl at the bar he's hitting on one girl and she says oh I can't go home with you because I'm here with my friends and he says well hey my face seats five which is skeevy but kind of a little funny I guess I was kind of waiting for him to like have sort of a turnaround moment where he kind of learns his lesson and realizes he needs to grow up. And we really don't see that in the movie. He's basically just an asshole the whole movie. He's got a wife and kid. He and the wife aren't together, but they're also not divorced. He doesn't have anything to do with his kid. He uses everyone around him. He tries to rape Jules. You know, she just wants to like talk to him and he takes her car keys and puts them in his pants and he does that in front of the house where his wife and baby live i mean he's just an absolute piece of shit but then at the end he's kind of like a hero because he does tell jules that she needs to like get her life together like that turn happens off camera i guess did that make any sense to you no. And, you know, I was really thinking that the college scene, which doesn't happen until maybe uh, halfway to two thirds through the film, I thought that's what was going to do it. Another test of time thing about Billy is that this is right on the cusp of when drunk driving became a really bad thing. Like, you hear stories about how, like, in the 70s, cop pulled you over drunk driving. He'd, like, tell you to go straight home or something like that. And mothers against drunk driving. This was a thing in the in the 80s. And it became a really bad thing. And 
I do not think they would have written Billy as a drunk driver today because I instantly didn't like him. Yeah. And it was only about like a third of the way through the movie. I'm like, oh, he's not a villain. Like, I, I think you're supposed to kind of like him or at least relate to him. He's not supposed to be a bad guy because he drove drunk with this girl and got her in an accident. But today, that would be easy exposition. Oh, this guy's a piece of shit. He drove drunk and his uh, friend was in the, in the seat and she's all injured. He's unremorseful. But they kind of played it off as like he's just a little bit too juvenile. Yeah, exactly. The reaction to his being a drunk driver and injuring and like maybe almost killing one of his best friends is, oh, Billy, that is such a you thing to do and not Jesus fucking Christ. What the fuck is the matter with you? You could have killed her. Right. So it's not taken seriously. And that is a problem. And a recurring theme with this movie, I think. But let's talk about Wendy, the girl who is injured in the car accident. She's from a rich family, and they're all in the greeting card business. At one point, one of the other friends says, oh, you know, there's a humongous future in greeting cards. And like he says it sarcastically, although I feel like in the 80s, 90s, maybe even early 2000s, Greeting card stores were a thing. Now they're basically uh, an endangered species. You don't find many of them around now, but they used to be around. You don't find them? Where would you get a birthday card today? At a drugstore. Oh, right, right, Okay, I was going to say, like, you don't order these things online. But you're right, like a Hallmark store today, yes. If I needed a birthday card, I'd probably go to more like a Walgreens, CVS kind of place. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there is still, I think it's a Hallmark store in a mall not too far away from where I live. I go in there maybe once a year because they have uh, good Christmas ornaments for the Christmas tree. But, like, there used to be more of them. It's not the most terrible thing they could have said from a test of time perspective, But Wendy is a virgin and she has like an unhealthy fixation on Billy and all the friends tell her that she shouldn't have that fixation, but she does anyway. And Wendy's probably the character I guess I like the most or hate the least, I guess, because she's the one who like actually cares about what she's doing. She wants to like make a difference. She's from this rich family. She could take a nice cushy job in the greeting card business, but she works with like homeless people. She works at a homeless shelter. Like she actually cares even when all of her friends are telling her not to basically. Yeah. And uh, she is uh, a Jewish woman. And there is a scene when she goes back home to have dinner with the family and I had some problems with the scene. It's not like they were all like crooked-nosed Jewish-looking Jews. If they had asked about Billy and said, what's his last name? Is he Jewish? Like, okay, every culture can relate to that. But do you remember what they were talking about at the dinner table? It was a lot about money and it was – I thought it was a little bit cringy. I mean, it's definitely supposed to be an ethnically Jewish family. It's not like they happen to be Jewish. It's just that the things they're talking about, I just didn't really love it. I'll give you a perfect example. There used to be this deli called um, the uh, Second Avenue Deli. I'm sure you went there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, And now it's moved. uh, It's now, I think, on Third Avenue. Yeah. But um, it used to be on Second Avenue right in uh, the East Village, like right on like 11th Street. And it was this classic Jewish deli with the pastramis hanging off of the ceiling and the kosher hot dogs. Do you remember what they had outside of the uh, store? No, I don't. 
they had the Jewish Walk of Fame. And it's sort of like a little like Hollywood thing. And it's only like one street corner on, on 2nd Avenue and like 11th Street. And 2nd Avenue Deli went out of business. And you know what's there now? No. It's a Chase Bank. It's a bank that happens to have adorned around it the Jewish Hall of Fame. Uh, I've just always been like, this is not the best optics. And, uh, you know, just like this, I, I didn't love the scene. It wasn't so bad. But I just remember just being like, oh, does her Jewish family have to be like this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I agree. I did like uh, her character, um, played by an actress, Mayor Winningham. We did see her in... Uh, in another film. Yeah, she is the love interest in Turner and Hooch. Of the main seven characters in this movie, her name, I think, is the one that stands the test of time the least. Like, she hasn't done a ton of stuff as opposed to, like, Emilio Estevez and Judd Nelson and Demi Moore. She's the one whose career didn't explode the most, I guess. It probably exploded in the 80s, like uh, Andrew McCarthy and yeah. uh, some of these guys had later comebacks. But uh, this is the film that launched a lot of careers. Yeah. Piggybacking on what you were saying about uh, the Jewish family scene, this movie was directed by Joel Schumacher, who is Jewish. And you would think that maybe he would have a little bit more respect for Jewish characters, being that he himself is Jewish. Along those lines... Let's move on to Kevin, played by Andrew McCarthy, who is a character that several people seem to think is gay. And he is a brooding type guy. He doesn't like his job. He's writing obituaries and he wants to write meaningful pieces about the meaning of life. And he's very depressed and sad and he hasn't had a date in ages and he hasn't had sex in ages. So people think, oh, maybe he's gay. And Jules, the character played by Demi Moore, is like, listen, you're gay. It's fine. We're still friends. I'll set you up with the interior decorator who lives down the hall. Like, he's great. You'll be happy. Don't be in the closet. Being gay is chic. I think she says it like it was chic in the 70s or something. Did you happen to notice the gay guy down the hall who she wants to introduce him to? He makes a brief uh, appearance in this film. Yeah. He walked out and he was holding an incredibly fruity cocktail like served the way like tgi fridays would serve you a ridiculous drink <laughs> that's how this guy was holding a drink i mean it was it was bad yeah i i know what you mean and the fact that they made him an interior decorator because that's like the stereotype but i thought that this was an interesting idea for this character because that would explain his story that he's a, a closeted gay man that's afraid to come out but it turns out, no, it's not that he's a closeted gay man who's afraid to come out. It's that he's in love with Leslie. And Jules thinks that he's in love with Alec, uh, who's played by Judd Nelson. But no, he's in love with his girlfriend, played by Ali Sheedy. And I found that, like, quote-unquote twist to be so disappointing, so predictable, it's a lame thing in general, but also just having like a story of someone being obsessed with someone else. It's not even original in the context of this movie. We'll talk about uh, Kirby and Emilio Estevez's character in a minute, but like it's similar. Like I love you from afar and that's like his thing. You know, I think it's perfectly fine to have the I love you from afar thing, but they 
put the gay thing in there wrongly. Like, he was the only guy that was a mystery about him. Like, what is going on with the guy? I, I was wondering, is he gay? Isn't he gay? I wasn't sure if they would make him gay in 1985. This is one of the two characters that I actually thought, this is subverting my uh, expectations. I really, uh, I did not think that 1985 would be this clever. Uh, no, that's shockingly what I was expecting. Yeah. And then even going back to the gay neighbor, the interior decorator, at the end of the movie, he sort of has like one more appearance when it's revealed that Kevin isn't gay. It's sort of like, oh, well, no time for you. He's not gay. And it's kind of like, womp, womp, sad for you, gay neighbor. And it's like just making that character the butt of a joke because he's gay for no other reason. And Joel Schumacher was a gay man. I say was, he passed away in 2020 uh, of cancer, not COVID. Uh, But like, Joel, you could have done a little bit better by your people, Jews and gays, you know? Yeah, I mean, it was just handled weird. I could even see that uh, character. It could even be comedic. Like, oh, you said this guy's interested in me? Oh, wait, he's straight? Oh, wait, he's gay. Guys, which one is it? And it could be, like, there could be something comedic in here. But it isn't, and then it's just cringy. Yes. Next, let's go to, you mentioned uh, Leslie. Let's talk about Alec and Leslie. Sure. They're played by Judd Nelson and Ali Sheedy. We'll remember them uh, from The Breakfast Club. Judd Nelson was the the tough guy, the one that tussles with the principal. The burnout. Yeah, the burnout. And Ali Sheedy, she was what today I guess you'd call her the goth, the one that had the dandruff in her hair. The basket case. In this film, they're almost unrecognizable because they're kind of yuppies. The burnout and basket case, I'm pretty sure, is what they refer to themselves as in The Breakfast Club. I'm more sure of basket case than I am of burnout, but whatever. Um, Alec is really the yuppie because he was very liberal in college and he had a job with a Democratic congressman, but then he wants to work for this Republican senator because the pay is better. And there was some interview I read where Joel Schumacher said that this was kind of like his idea for the movie, at least in the early stages, that it was about the Reaganization of youth in the mid 80s and how People had these liberal dreams and they were crushed by like the success of Reagan and the conservative movement in the 80s and all of that stuff. And okay, fine. That could be very interesting if that was the subject of the movie or even a trait of one of your characters. But it's really glossed over. We just find out that he was liberal. Now he's working for Republican And that's it. Like, they don't explore that at all. They don't explain why he's sold out. He's obsessed with getting married. He really wants to marry Leslie. And you think maybe it's because he wants to have a career in politics, so he needs to be a family man. But they don't really explain that or explore that. What they do say is that Alec really likes cheating on Leslie. He bought her some lingerie and had sex with the lingerie saleswoman because she offered to model it for him. Like, holy shit, is that a thing that happens in department stores? You like go to buy some lingerie for your girlfriend or wife and the the woman who works there is like, oh, let me try it on for you. And then has sex with you in the dressing room. I mean, that never happened to me. Never? Oh, well, okay. It hasn't happened to me recently. Not in 2022, you mean? Yes. Um... Does January count as 2022? Yeah, it does, actually. Oh, okay. Well, then I guess it did. No, um, like, I don't look like Judd frickin' Nelson, but like, Jesus Christ. 
But like you yeah. look like Alan Noah. You are one hot piece of ass, Al. You are Judd Nelson, nineteen eighty-five. Aw, thank you. But like he likes cheating on Leslie. But then he says that if they get married, then he won't cheat on her anymore because that will fix it, I guess. Well, I mean, this sounds like the kind of thing of like a couple that's totally disastrous and decides, let's have a baby that will fix us. Because if he's just cheating on a girlfriend right now, it's not as big a deal as cheating on your wife. And that's what I think. I think he needs that commitment. It's like you need to pay for the gym. Otherwise, you're not going to go to it. That's what he's thinking. I think that's what he's saying because it's it's ridiculous. I'm I'm laughing because I'm just kind of like the secret to not committing adultery is the same as like a gym membership. I want to be clear. That's not my idea. He clearly <laughs> says this at one point. And I think it's, uh, who is it, Billy or, or Kirby? One of them's like, this is the stupidest thing ever. It's not just that it's stupid. It's that I don't understand, like, the reasons behind it. And I don't really understand why he's doing the things he's doing, good or bad. I just don't understand his motivations. So I hate Alec. I don't like him at all. He's a piece of shit. And I don't hate Leslie, but I kind of pity her because she's being strung along by this asshole and she doesn't realize it. And then she does suspect it later and she confronts him and then she walks away from him. And that's great, but I still feel like I don't really connect with her character either. Yeah, I actually thought Alec was the character most likely to get a redemption. They're like, why'd you take this job if it was against all your ideals? And he's like, I did it for money. I'm like, oh, obviously he's going to quit the job at the end. I thought this movie was going to be a lot about realizing you're not a dumb little uh, adolescent college kid anymore. Now you're an adult. It's the 80s. Grow up, guys. That just didn't happen to a lot of them. It didn't happen to any of them. Which is a problem, that these characters are despicable and making horrible, horrible decisions, and you're waiting for that redemption arc, for them to learn a lesson, for them to grow as characters, and it doesn't happen. Yep. And uh, let's talk about uh, Demi Moore's character, Juliana, or Jules. She is the seemingly rich girl. She's very chic. She's wearing like a different hat in every scene in this film. And I mean like fancy hats. These are not baseball caps. These are, you know, what Cher would wear in uh, clueless kind of hats. Yeah. And the twist with her is that she's not really rich. She's in massive debt. They say something about like she got an advance on her salary Was that a thing that ever happened in the real world? I've heard about it in movies and TV shows. I mean, I've never asked a boss for an advance on my salary. I can't imagine that that was like a real thing. But according to pop culture, it was. I mean, I would imagine it could be. I mean, I could imagine telling your boss, like, you know, I need an extra 500 bucks. Take it out of next month's paycheck or something. I could see it being a very simple thing to do. I've just never heard of it, you know, really happening. I guess the the thing is we don't live paycheck to paycheck that I need to to kind of embarrass myself to my boss and tell him, hey, I'm in a jam. I really need part of next paycheck early. Yeah, that's true. Also, in my early 20s, when I was living paycheck to paycheck, I worked for NBC and VH1 and, you know, big 
corporations, you know, maybe you could get an advance on your paycheck if you were working for your buddy Gus, you know, that might just be an easier thing to do. But the thing I really like about Jules is we get her backstory. We understand her relationship with her father and her step monster is what she calls like his second wife or something. And she was always so mean to her. It's a tragic backstory, but at least I, the person watching the movie, understand her. I understand why Jules is the way she is. I understand why she makes some of the terrible decisions that she makes. And I appreciated that because of the seven main characters, she's the only one who has that kind of backstory where it's like, okay, I don't agree with what she's doing, but I get it. I get where she's coming from. Yeah, I thought Demi Moore's character was another such obvious redemption arc because, you know, she really reminded me of the character Rachel from Friends. And the way that character starts out is she starts out as a spoiled little rich girl who may or may not be as rich as she is because she's cut off from daddy. And then by the end of Friends, Rachel learns that she doesn't need to be as materialistic. It's not that big a lesson, but it's it's obvious. It's right there. It's there for your taking. That's not what happens to Jules. And she also has a, a subplot that she's uh, – it's cocaine, right? She's yes. a coke addict. Yes. And there could certainly be something interesting there. Maybe she could even die. That would be interesting if she dies of uh, cocaine. But nothing really happens except she like basically quits it by saying, no, I don't need it anymore. And – that's pretty cool that you can just give up a highly addictive drug like cocaine. And I'm not saying this is something that no one can do, but she seems to have been the kind of person who can't go 10 minutes without a bump. It should be noted that when Demi Moore was hired for this movie, she had a cocaine addiction and Joel Schumacher fired her, sent her to rehab. She got clean and then she came back to set and then played a character who was addicted to cocaine once she was sober. So kind of a meta irony there also neither here nor there but god was she beautiful in this movie i mean obviously i knew that demi moore was beautiful this is the first movie we've done on the podcast where you see demi moore real we've never done a demi moore film huh no and there's more that we need to do but we have done a movie where you hear demi moore i don't know that one it's an uncredited role but it's definitely her voice Beavis and Butthead do America. What role does she play? She plays like the sexy temptress that they're like going to Vegas to score with. Oh, that's funny. I didn't and, know. and the guy who's paying Beavis and Butthead to, quote, do her, which he means kill her, uh, is Bruce Willis. <laughs> that's at, at the time, her husband. But whatever. Let's go on to the seventh and final main character, Kirby, played by Emilio Estevez. Oh, boy. Yeah. Now, I will tell you from the beginning, he was my favorite character. Oh, yeah? Why is that? Because I like the character in the beginning. I like this uh, law student who has, like, the apron from the uh, from the fast food place. I like that ethic. And he runs to the hospital with the apron on. Yeah. He's in the hospital. So I like that. You know, I see Emilio Estevez in the 80s, kind of your jock-looking uh, guy, because I'm a little biased from Breakfast Club. Sure. But he's telling Billy, knock it off. And I like this guy at first. In the hospital, he bumps into Andy McDowell, who is a hospital intern, although this doesn't make any sense, by the way, because do you remember what he said? Uh, he said, the last time I saw you, I was a blank and you were a blank. 
Uh, he was a freshman. She was a senior. Right. So if this is right after he graduated, how is she already an intern? She was like a Doogie Hauser type, maybe. I don't know. Why didn't they just make her a medical student? I don't know. The math doesn't work. Okay. But um, she's great in the in the small parts of the film. When you were saying, I hate all these characters, I'm like, what's wrong with Andy McDowell's character? But she's not really one of the principal characters. Yeah, she's not one of the core seven. She's just the object of affection for one of them. And object of affection, I immediately take that back. Object of obsession. Obsession. And not like in the cute Calvin Klein kind of a way. Like the scary, sick, stalker kind of a way. There's a scene where he is following her. He's following Dale. That's Annie McDowell's character's name. And she goes to a party and he's watching her through the window in the rain. And immediately I'm thinking, holy shit, this guy's going to do something violent. He is a scary motherfucker right now. Then he goes into the party soaking wet oh wait, we have to say this is not like a, a little like med student intern party this looks like this is like the hospital uh administrators and the head of the department has invited her for like a formal party at his home his or her home right 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 right. it kind of gave me vibes of a uh, major league when tom berger follows renee russo home and then goes into the party but kirby here goes into the party he's soaking wet everyone's kind of like oh <gasps> He walks right up to Dale and says that he's obsessed with her. And then cut to him in her apartment. She brought him home and is saying, oh, you don't really like me. I'm a mess. I don't even make the bed or take out the garbage. Like, you brought him home? What the actual fuck is wrong with you, Dale? I actually thought, you know what, he's going to go in and it's going to be something really sweet. Like, look at this pathetic guy. He's drenched. He's completely out of place here. We watched a movie on Parenthood. There's a scene when Rick Moranis kind of humiliates himself and he begs his wife to take him back at her at her school. I was kind of expecting a scene like that. Like, this is going to be so embarrassing for him and to have to profess his love. But no, he's like angrily like i am obsessed with you and it's not in a sweet way either you're right she brings him home makes no sense and then later on he decides um he wants to find her again and he finds out she's gone for the weekend right the way he finds out is he goes to her apartment and he's hitting all of the the buzzer buttons you know like uh some apartment buildings have and one of the neighbors opens the window and is like why are you doing that and and uh He says, I'm trying to find Dale. And uh, she says, well, I'm not going to tell you where she is. And then he says the most cringe line of this entire film. He says, I can't be responsible for my actions if you don't tell me. And I disagree with the word cringe. I know I'm nitpicking and arguing semantics and it's annoying when I do that. No, you're right. I will already say it's not cringe. It's just creepy. It's Uh, horrifying. He's basically saying, I will bludgeon you to death. Yeah. If you don't tell me where this woman is. And then the next scene is he's outside her ski cabin. Yeah, it's terrifying. He shows up. He bangs on the door. Dale's boyfriend answers the door, and then he runs off because he's mad that she's there with a boyfriend, although, I mean, maybe he could have anticipated that, but whatever. He sees that, he's furious, he gets in the car, 
He can't leave because he doesn't have good enough traction on his tires. It's snowing. And they invite him in to spend the night there so he doesn't freeze to death. The man comes out and invites him in. This guy is completely innocent. He's taken a young woman to to this cabin. She seems to be wanting to be there. They seem to be kind of wearing robes. Like, they have been uh, making whoopee in that cabin. I believe it's called apres-ski. Yes, yes, yes. In that context. And this guy even comes to him and he's like, why don't you come in? And Kirby goes, no, I'm going to stay here. At this point, you've offered. You almost go, all right, man, you know, whatever. But this guy's like, no, dude, come in. You're going to freeze to death. Right. He's trying to save his life. Maybe he's a doctor too. And it's the Hippocratic Oath in some version. Uh, Hippocratic Oath does not say you'll guarantee to save their life. So, okay. (laughs) In fact, weirdly, the Hippocratic Oath, the original Hippocratic Oath, is a oath to never give an abortion. Oh. Yes. It's called a pessary and said you will never give a woman something that will commit a pessary. You better not hurt the baby. Whoa. It's not in the modern Hippocratic Oath. Holy shit. That is fascinating. I did not know that. Uh, But this boyfriend not only saves uh, Kirby's life by letting him spend the night, but when he's leaving, he's like, oh, let me go get my camera and I'll take a picture of you two. What? Why the fuck would you do that? Why would you leave him alone with her? Why would you offer to take a picture of them? And then once the two of them are alone, Dale says to Kirby, you know... You seem like a really nice guy. What? No, he doesn't. He seems like a psycho stalker. And maybe I'm making a mistake by letting you go. What? No, you are not. You are 100% right to get this fucking guy away from you. And then he kisses her. She kisses him back while, like, the triumphant music is playing. Like, yay, he won. He drives away and he's all happy. He's, like, pumping his fist. He's excited. He's ecstatic. And it's like... I was really expecting this story to go in a certain direction where this character has a psychotic break, but no, he's like the leading man. We're rooting for him. We're happy for him. What the fuck? Absolutely. I was completely shocked. I was like, oh, this Andy McDowell character, she is a lovely, intelligent woman. What the fuck does she need this guy for? And also... When you're with someone, you're like, go away, and someone kisses you. Is that a kiss that's really going to change your life? What did he do? I mean, we saw this kiss. I mean, maybe accompanied by the most beautiful thing you've ever heard, and then you're falling in love. But this seems to be the physical act of some kiss technique he did, that (laughs) after the kiss, she's now into him. Yeah, and like, I tend to, in general, not always love it when there's a story in real life about, like, a rapist and they say, like, well, it's movies and TV shows and that's why I did this horrible thing. Like, fuck you. No, don't blame media because you're a monster. But, like, I kind of watch a movie like this and I'm like, you know what? If there was a guy who is maybe on the fence about being a rapist, not being a rapist, this is kind of like, hey, man, go for it. Chicks dig it when you're super aggressive and stalk them and follow them on vacation when they're with their boyfriend. Hey, just force a kiss on her and then she'll like you. Like, this is 
a horrible, horrible message to send to the young people who are watching this movie, who this movie was ostensibly made for. You know what? I'll even call it irresponsible. This is an irresponsible thing to have this character do and have him be the hero. If you're going to have him do all this shit and make him out to be the bad guy, fine. But making him out to be one of the characters you cheer for is irresponsible. And like, shame on you, Joel Schumacher. Sorry, I know you're dead, but what the fuck? Yeah, so basically the movie ends, uh, they talk about going to brunch. At Houlihan's. Uh, <laughs> and we also find out that uh, Billy, uh, he's going to go to New York with nothing but his saxophone. Yeah, there's a lot of sax in this movie that Billy plays and just in the score. And uh, yeah, he believes that he can make it as a rock and roller playing the sax. I mean, maybe if he goes to New York and hooks up with Bruce Springsteen, maybe. Or Dave Matthews. Sure, sure. There are a couple of uh, rock bands that have a saxophone player. Ska. He can have one hit in 1997. Sure, absolutely. The whole thing about brunch I thought was funny because they're like standing outside the bar, St. Elmo's bar, that they've gone to a million times throughout the movie. And they're like, eh, we could go have a drink, but it's a weeknight. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we need to be old and responsible. Yeah, let's do brunch. Brunch on Sunday, 1230. Houlihan's, sure. The Houlihan's thing is funny because there are still some Houlihan's, although not that many. You know, that to me was like, okay, here they are showing some measure of responsibility, some tiny bit of growth. It was cute in that line, but also woefully insufficient, you know, for the growth of all of these characters. Uh, Leslie decides that she's not going to be with either Alec or Kevin. She's going to be on her own, which is a decision that makes sense. And I don't fault her for that. But then they all decide that they're going to be friends, even though Alec was ready to kill Kevin before, literally murder him. He was like holding him off of a fire escape and was like about to let him go and, you know, killed the guy. But now they're all friends because it's a week or two later or whatever. Wendy decides that she's not going to follow what her father's telling her to do, and she's going to be independent and not follow Billy to New York, even though she kind of loves Billy. So I agree with that choice. Although also in the scene before that, she has sex with Billy. She loses her virginity to him when Billy asks if that can be his going away present, which is so fucking creepy and cringy and terrible. And she's like, yeah, sure. Why not? But let me ask you, James, do you think that St. Elmo's Fire stands the test of time? You know, this is a film that's been on my list for a while. I've always wanted to see this film. Same here. Um, you know, we didn't talk about it yet, but uh, since the song was played like five times during this movie. Twice. Uh, twice, but it's been in my head for a while. Here's a clip from uh, John Parr's uh, St. Elmo's Fire. Yeah, that's an 80s song right there. Not a bad 80s song. No, no, it's an amazing song. Yeah, that's a good song. Apparently, it's not about this film at all. It's about like some like Paralympian yeah. or something. Um, it's got everything it needs to be a really good film. It's got a good cast, a young, charismatic cast. Um, I think for the most part, decent acting. 
Um, you know, I was wondering whether I didn't like Emilio Estevez's acting, or I think it's more I didn't like his character, and he was just playing a, a bigger hothead than I thought he should play. But this film needed to walk so modern movies could run. When you look at, like, a rom-com today, or, or everyone's thought of these things of, like, you know, you ever realize that if men had done half the things that guys do in rom-coms, they'd be arrested? And you think, imagine, like, a woman opens her office, and there's 10,000 roses in there, you know, floor to ceiling. That's creepy as fuck. Yeah. Films today would subvert the expectations of what you'd expect. You know, today... Kirby, Emilio Estevez's character, would stalk uh, Andy McDowell, and then in the end, she'd be like, what the fuck did you think, man? Like, the old lady in my apartment, she just called me here and said you threatened to kill her if she didn't tell you where I was, and she immediately called you because, I'm so sorry, I had to tell him where you were because this young man said he'd kill me if I didn't tell you. Right. Like, dude, what the fuck? And he shows up, and the police are there to arrest him, you know? At least today, we're aware that these tropes were ridiculous. And I think we kind of needed St. Elmo's Fire to show us these tropes and go, oh, this is really bad here. There's another part about Kirby's character that makes him a complete ass. And that is another entire subplot that he finally gets a better job because he wants a little more money. He wants a better job than this uh, fast food job he had had. And he gets a job being the caretaker. There's this really rich guy, Mr. Kim, and he immediately gives Kirby the keys to his mansion and is like, I will be gone this weekend, care for the home. And Kirby does, you know, what what you'd expect a, a guy in this situation to do. He throws a big party. But he doesn't try to do a, uh, a risky business kind of cleanup. Well, he gets stuck in the snow. You would think he should think, hey, dude, Mr. Kim is coming back in the morning. I can't drive up to Vermont right now and go to Andy McDowell. I'll get her tomorrow. But in the 80s idea of romanticism, no, you drive in the middle of the night and you do this. And all of these things that today I guess maybe might be real creepy. It works sometimes in the movies. But I did not like those things. And if you remember that cheesy uh, 90s sitcom Full House, there was, you know, the family situations of the three girls. And then there was always a lesson to be had at the end. And right when Danny Tanner, one of the uncles, would talk to the girls and be like, girls, you know, it's not right to ever call people names. There would be this, like, piano going in the background. Then I called it the lesson music. And they play this awful piano uh, score that sounds like uh, Full House lesson music throughout the film. It's really bad. This one could be remade very well. It really could. I I think there's a lot in here that's good. And I actually totally understand why it was a hit in the 80s. Because... We're a little bit more aware of how creepy these things were. It's well made, and Joel Schumacher is certainly a capable director when he does a good film. Yeah. Uh, he's capable of making bad films. But this is not a Batman and Robin thing. This is just the each individual story just really doesn't end on a way that would satisfy a modern audience. I really don't think so. And for that reason, this film does not stand the test of time. What do you think, Al? 1985, St. Elmo's Fire. Stands the test of time, doesn't stand the test of time. What do you think? When I started watching this movie, I really liked it. I was really in. I was interested in these characters in their 20s and their ennui and why they were so dissatisfied with their lives and life after college. It kind of made me think of 
the movie we talked about with our moms, The Big Chill, where you had these friends from college. And in that movie, I think it was 10 to 20 years after college, they were dealing with their loss of innocence a decade or so after college, as opposed to this movie where they're dealing with a different kind of loss of innocence months after graduating college. And I was like, okay, I'm into this. I love this cast. I'm really curious to see what's going to happen. And they were making terrible decisions. And I didn't like the characters, but I'm like, okay, they're going to learn some lessons. They're going to grow. It's going to be great. And they don't. They are terrible people start to finish. There's no growth. There's no development. They're just shitty people, always. I'm angry and mad at all of the male characters, and I feel bad for the female characters. And neither one of those things are great. I can't connect with any of them. Did you watch the Lena Dunham show Girls on HBO? No, I did not. I watched it for a season maybe or two, and I gave up on it because I appreciated what the show was going for, but I hated all of the characters. There was no one in that show that I could like relate to, root for, cheer for, hope they figure it out, hope they get it straight. I hated all of them. Like I can watch Breaking Bad and hate Walter White because I'm kind of rooting for Jesse. You know, like there has to be some character that I'm pulling for. For me, maybe that's not true for anybody, but either I hate the characters in this movie or I feel bad for them. And none of them learn lessons. None of them grow. It's just really a shitty ending. It's really anticlimactic. And no, this movie doesn't stand the test of time for a long, long list of reasons. And I'm sad. I'm sad because I really wanted to like this movie. I was excited about watching a Brat Pack movie that I'd never seen before. I love the song. I thought that this movie was about biking. And I think the reason I thought that was because someone sang this song at karaoke once and like you know the karaoke videos are sometimes just generic footage just generic b-roll and it was people riding on bikes i was like oh say now most fire must be a movie about biking it is not uh i wish it was because maybe i would have liked it more i really can't get behind this movie or recommend it in any way and that sucks but no it does not stand the test of time Neither here nor there, but uh, I will just tell our listeners that we have a Google Doc where we keep some of our notes and information. And at the top of the page for St. Elmo's Fire, you put the uh, the gif of Elmo with like the fire behind him. And that was really, really funny. And it made me laugh. Well done. The gif or jif? Gif. Oh, okay. Gif is the proper pronunciation I don't care what anyone says. Even the guy who invented the GIF, when he says it's pronounced GIF, he's wrong. So, well done with the GIF. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be watching a movie that I've never seen and am curious to see. Fingers crossed that I'll like it more than St. Elmo's Fire. The Full Monty. I've heard of it. I know it's about male strippers, I think. I saw this movie exactly once. I rented it from the library back in the 90s. Nice. And uh, I believe it ends in a freeze frame, Al. Well, you should have said spoiler alert, James. Spoiler alert, it ends in a freeze frame. You can't say it retroactively. It doesn't work that way. They all jump in the air. It's one of those, like, executive producer, Donald J. Belisario. I think you're thinking of TV shows. I'm excited to watch The Full Monty. We will be back here next week talking about that movie. Don't miss it. Subscribe. 
we are on all of the podcast places. Just hit that subscribe button. Hit like, hit follow, hit whatever it tells you to do. Listen to the button, okay? And talk to us. We are at Testing Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let us know what you think about St. Elmo's Fire and the Brat Pack and Emilio Estevez being a total creep. And uh, we will see you next time, everybody. Bye. Uh-huh.